Thank you, Adam. If you have your copies of Scripture, if you will, um, turn with me to Matthew chapter 5. Um, our teaching text is in uh, the worship guide, but we're going to be looking at a larger piece of the text in just a moment. I'm encouraged today uh, as I am reminded already that there is not a care, there's not a concern, there's not a hurt, there's not a struggle uh, that uh, the God of grace and mercy uh, is not uh, unaware of, but rather cares about and cares about you and cares about me. Uh, grateful today that we were able already to pray and intercede on behalf of brothers and sisters in Christ, uh, their ministry uh, as they gather to share the gospel uh, and even to give consideration to their physical needs as they struggle with sickness and deal with grief and death. Those are real things. They're real things in our lives. Uh, you're carrying some real burdens um, and yet in the midst of that, because of all the things that we have looked at today and in pointing to Christ and looking heavenward, there's somehow all the heaviness, while it doesn't go away, it is not overwhelming and it doesn't drive us down. It just does not. For those whose hope is in Christ, for those who have trusted in Him, for those who are looking ahead to the day when we will see Him face to face. Um, it just does not beat us down. And I'm grateful for that. Uh, we help each other in that. The purpose of today was for us to be reminded of that and for us to remind one another of that. Uh, we will have hard days ahead of us. We just necessarily will. Uh, but as a family, uh, loving each other, caring for each other, uh, we come alongside of each other uh, and make a difference in each other's lives because of the difference that Christ has made uh, in ours. Uh, you've had a chance to find Matthew chapter 5. Uh, for those of you who are uh, just joining us today, uh, or if you hadn't been here for a couple of weeks, uh, we started two weeks ago with a 16-week series on the Sermon on the Mount uh, we preached through Matthew uh, back in 2022, um, took the whole Sermon on the Mount and dealt with it in one message, knowing that we would uh, at some future date, uh, should God grant, and already had it marked on the calendar even then, that we would deal with it now in the early days of 2024. And I'm grateful that he has uh, granted us to be here uh, and to be able to do this. I want us this morning as we begin uh, to back up and read uh, from verse 1 of chapter 5. And I know we've already dealt with the Beatitudes. Um, and while the Sermon on the Mount is a whole piece, it's a whole sermon, um, there are places in this sermon that are almost like points would be in us hearing sermons. And so as we give attention to verses 13 through 16 today, I believe we're concluding a first part of the sermon. And, he, and Jesus continues to preach. Uh, but I want us to go back and hear uh, what we have already heard so that it will help shape our thinking and help us understand verses 13 through 16. I invite you to follow along. 
seeing the crowds, uh, he went up on the mountain. And when he sat down, his disciples came to him. And he opened his mouth and he taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. You're the salt of the earth, but if the salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It's no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. You're the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Will you pray with me? Father, we appeal to you now to help us in some way to hear what Jesus' followers heard. We ask these things in his name. Amen. We were reminded last week that the context for this sermon is Matthew's gospel. We read in Matthew 1 that by God's providence, a man by the name of Joseph, who was a descendant of King David, was betrothed to a young woman by the name of Mary. Before their marriage was consummated, Joseph came to discover that she was pregnant. And since he knew that she was to be a virgin and he had not violated that, he was contemplating on how he was going to divorce her. Then an angel came to him in a dream to inform him not to divorce her, not to put her away, but rather to carry out his plan to marry her. And the angel told him that she had not been violated, but rather that she had conceived by the Holy Spirit. And then the angel said, She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. By now, most of us have heard statements throughout the Bible and will hardly flinch. We didn't flinch at that statement. Passes by us. Doesn't cause us to think much. Certainly doesn't stir us to give consideration to what we just heard. There's no wonder and there's no excitement. Why? I want you to pause for a moment and consider that the third person of the Godhead, the Holy Spirit, who as the Father is a spirit and isn't seen, divinely worked in bringing about the pregnancy of a young woman who 
who is said will bear a son and this son's sole work in life is summed up in these words. He will save his people from their sins. It's incredible, isn't it? The Spirit of God working in such a way, something that no one can see, and yet you will see evidence of it. And to have that kind of proclamation that this one that would be born, born of the seed of God, born by His Spirit, will save His people from their sins. You'll be reminded whenever we were studying Matthew, we came to understand uh, who all those people were. They were not of a particular ethnic group. They were people that God called to faith and people that trusted in Christ. He will save his people from their sin. Now I want you to fast forward from that for just a moment. Look ahead 30 years, and what do we see? We see Jesus sitting on a mountainside teaching his followers. Him, this one, he had already been openly identified by God. This is my beloved son. He'd been openly identified by the last Old Testament prophet as the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And now he is there in that current situation, sitting on a mountainside, teaching a group of followers. A group of people that he would not grow old with, but rather will leave behind in three years. A new kingdom had been ushered in. One that would never collapse, never be defeated. A new king was now ruling who would never be unseated, never be defeated. And as we just read, he just characterized those who follow him. And not only did he characterize them, what did he do? He blessed them. There is hope in that blessing. That's the reason I wanted us to hear it again. That's the reason today that when we're looking now at our own lives and our own struggles and all the things that have gone on in the past that have shaped us and all the things that will take place in the future, when we're looking ahead, when we've trusted Christ, there are definite blessings which He has blessed us with. The greatest being to know Him, to identify with Him, to love him, be loved by him, to walk with him, to have him walk with us, to guide us and lead us beyond all of this to that place where we will spend eternity with him. That was the blessing to be sons of God, children of God. He blessed them with eternal blessings that cannot be taken away, cannot be destroyed. Now let's think along those lines with me for a moment. Listen to this. A sin-saving, sin-forgiving, sin-bearing, death-defying, heaven-descending, and heaven-ascending, 
all-powerful and all-authoritative king and ruler is marking out and identifying his followers, blessing them with remarkable blessings, and then says to them, you are the salt of the earth and you are the light of the world. Why? Why say that? They're blessed with heaven. Why say that? What did he mean? And what difference was that going to make? Maybe let's reshape the question. And it'll be the same question, but it's not going to sound at all like that. You're here as a believer today. What good are you in this world? What good are you? What good are Christians in this world? Well, a lot of folks would say they're absolutely no good. For all kinds of different reasons. But what good are you in the world? If you're a believer, what good are you to this world? As a church, what good are we to this community? What is it about us that somehow will help this community that we live in. Jesus has said, you are the salt of the earth and you are the light of the world. And he could have said anything else after following all of those characteristics, all of that work that he has done in his followers in bringing about a poor and a broken spirit and a mourning heart over sin and a desire for righteousness and a pure heart, making them peacemakers and then having them engage the world in such a way that persecution, just like we read about from Stephen, that persecution would become for many of them imminent. It would come, not all. And then his next words are to them, you are the salt of the earth and you are the light of the world. Remember, everything about Jesus' followers were different. That was the whole point. Everything about them was different than those who were not followers of Christ. Here today, for those of us who profess Christ, we are different, should be different, are different. If the Spirit of God lives in us, we are different. Yes, I know, we'll struggle, and we do. And we'll sin, and we do. But we run headlong to God and cry out for forgiveness, for grace, for strength, for help. Pushing toward a desire for a pure heart. Pushing toward a hunger and a thirst for righteousness. Those are defining characteristics and qualities that are only true of believers. And then consequently, what is also only true of believers is that they are the sons and daughters of God. I ran across this little poem this week. Um, I'd heard it before, had forgotten about it, but I want to share it with you. And I think that this, at least in some ways, will capture in some ways, some of what Jesus was saying. We're living a gospel, a chapter each day. By deed that we do, by word that we say, 
Men read what we live, whether faithless or true. Say, what is the gospel according to you? I believe this is the point that Jesus was addressing. The world needed something. We've already said it. The world longs for peace, longs for hope. Try to find it in all kinds of ways. And over the course of human history, there have been all kinds of ways. But there was a day when people actually were looking to God. And then they began to look to themselves And we have as a culture and by and large of the world today, we have recognized that we can't save ourselves, but we are looking for all other kinds of ways to do it. We're not getting better. We're reminded of that every day when we hear the news. When in the course of less than 24 hours, we have people stepping into public areas, shooting and killing people. The young, the old. That's just one example. The point is, is we are not not being perfected by our own means. We are not being made holy. We're not even being made moral. We're not even being made good by our own means. Education's not helping. Medical advancements aren't helping. None of those things are helping. And we realize that And as Adam said, we're looking for peace and hope. But where are we going to find it? And what does that have to do with what Jesus was saying to his followers that day? And I believe continues to speak to his followers today. You are the salt of the earth. You're the light of the world. As we consider this, Let's begin by considering the Christian's posture toward the world. Why that? Well, they're the salt of the earth. They're the light of the world. He's already establishing a certain posture, but we need to see the fullness of that. It seems that Jesus is expecting them to do something by virtue of who they are, by virtue of what he has made them, by virtue of what he has already done. And for us, that work has been completed because the work that he has done for us in dying for our sin and being buried and raised again. So what is the posture? He's wanting us to do something. He's not intending us to do nothing and he's not leaving it up to us to determine what it is that we are to do. What we are to be. Now he presses in. He tells us. He says, you are the salt of the earth. You are the light of the world. Who? Well, I made the point last week, but if you look in verse 11, as we read through the Beatitudes, everything is, is, I'm not specific, but it is general in that blessed are the merciful, blessed are the pure in heart, blessed are the peacemakers. But when he gets to verse 11, he looks at them, I think in a little different way, because he's pressing home a point. He said, blessed are you. Blessed are you. And then he says, blessed are you 
when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you, rejoice and be glad. He is directing it to them. And what does he say next? You are the salt of the earth and you are the light of the world. He's blessed those that he has identified with and that now by faith is identified with him. My question today first, have you identified with him? Have you identified with him? Have you trusted him? Have you seen him for the king that he is? Have you recognized that in the course of his rule and reign and kingship that there is a kingdom that cannot be destroyed and that every other kingdom that has existed has been destroyed in some way and will ultimately be destroyed and there will be one kingdom left. And it will not be a kingdom because everybody now is a part of the same political party and we all gather together. It won't be a kingdom that is brought about by conservative thinking and conservative think tanks. It won't be a kingdom that will be established because now we have a, a, a really, really good leader that's going to bring us together as a world. That is not the kingdom. This kingdom is different. This king is different. And he's looking at his disciples and he's blessed them. Because he has identified with them. And he will identify with that group and identifies with those who follow him. He identified with us on the cross, took on our sin, took on the wrath of God, propitiated for it. No one else has done that. No one else can. What does that have to do with our posture toward the world? Well, Jesus is pointing to his disciples, and you are the salt of the earth, and you are the light of the world. That means something. Let's consider some of the things that we hear that Jesus said about the world and his posture and our posturing toward the world. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world but in order that the world might be saved through him. I have given them your word and the world has hated them because they are not of this world just as I am not of the world, I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. They're not of the world, just as I'm not of the world. Sanctify them in truth. Your word is true. And as you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. And for their sake, I consecrate myself so that they also may be sanctified in truth. I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word. 
that they may all be one just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, and that they also may be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you've given me, I've given to them. That they may be one even as we are one. I in them and you in me and that they may become perfectly one so that the world may know that you sent me and love them even as you love me. Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, and the pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. And the world is passing away along with its desires. What can we gather from that as far as a particular posturing toward the world? It certainly does not mean to withdraw from the world and withdraw from people and withdraw from life and withdraw from relationships. It doesn't mean that we come in here and camp out and hide. It doesn't mean that we come in here and point our fingers back at the world. That's not what God did. He sent His Son into the world. He sent his son into the world and he sent his son into the world and his son dies and sacrifices for sin. Why? So that the world will know the Father. And then what does he do with his followers? He sends them into the world. Not to be like the world, not to condemn the world, but he sends them to be salt and light. That's our posture, should be our posture, is our posture. Jesus isn't telling them to become salt, to become light. He says, you are. By virtue of who I have made you, you are these things. So what's the Christian's place in the world? Well, we have already said it. We know that we're not going to withdraw from it. We're the salt of the earth. We're the light of the world. What did he mean? He meant this first. You are the only salt of the world, the earth, and you are the only light of the world. If you go back and look at that and know a little bit about Greek and how that is structured, that's exactly what he was saying. Not that there is another salt or another light. No, this world is in need of salt and this world is in need of light and you are the only salt and you are the only light. Which would cause us to conclude what? That if we aren't salt and we aren't light, then there is something lacking in the world that Jesus necessarily means to convey to us that the world needs. Why else for being poor in spirit? Why else for having God work in your heart to bring about a desire for righteousness? All of these things lead to the very fact and the very truth that you are here in this world. I have put you here. 
I have been placed here. You have been placed here. Not for nothing. And not for what you want to determine your life to be. But for being salt and being light. The only salt and the only light. Have you ever considered the place of a Christian in the world? Have you ever thought about what our role really is? Are we to be the moral fiber of our society? Certainly that's admirable. We, we know God's ways. We should be teaching and living God's ways. We should hold it up. But that's not our only place in the world. So we're the salt of the earth. Have you ever said that about someone? They're the salt of the earth. Tom. It's the salt of the earth. It's a compliment. It's a compliment. What does it mean? Well, it means that I believe Tom to be dependable and trustworthy and honorable, kind, helpful. But that isn't what Jesus had in mind. That was not at the forefront of what Jesus had in mind. We know that salt has certain qualities. And oftentimes when we look at this text, that's where we go. We go to the qualities of salt or the things that salt does that nothing else quite does it the same way. We know that it adds flavor and season. In fact, um, I love grits. But if you give me grits without salt, my love turns to a hate and I won't eat them. Um, hospitals know that for the few times I've been in the hospital. They bring grits and no salt, and they're left on the plate. Adds taste, flavor, kind of some zest. We also know that salt cleanses, it purifies. In fact, I don't know that any of you have ever bathed your children in salt, but there has been a time back that they would bathe their children in salt to clean them and to, and to purify them. And probably most of us know that it preserves meat and things. We used to salt meat when we would have our hog killings. And I know that's maybe something that you've not experienced, some of you. And in the fall of the year, we would take mullets and we would salt fish. Why? Kept them from rotting. Didn't put them in the refrigerator, didn't put them in the freezer. But salt kept them from disintegrating. You know we're living in a world that is rotten. We're living in a rotten world. Now, I'm not saying that in a disparaging way about God. Now, God in His providence is on His throne, but the world that we're living in is decaying and rotting away and it seems to be that somehow God intends the presence of his children to make a difference in that. He's not telling us to purify the world. We can't save the world. We can't save one human being. Can't save the soul of anyone. But there is something about the presence of Christians that is a work and an act of grace by God 
in that place in the world. Been working through Joshua um, devotionally. And it was reminded that, and, and, and this, is, this was just a bigger piece of the theological theme as I'm working through that, I'm realizing that when Joshua is led by the commander of the army of the Lord, who is none other than Christ, and they go into battle, and God gives them victory after victory, and the renown of God goes out from that, and all these other kings are hearing about it, and they are fearful of God, and they come together, and they, in an alliance, because they are going to take out God, and then that doesn't happen, it can't happen, it never will, and it is a picture of this kingdom, but then I was reminded, and the renown of God goes out again after the destruction of the people, because God has worked by his grace in the life of a group of undeserving people and the rest of the world is hearing about his renown. Which should do what? It should cause them to tremble. But if it doesn't and they come to God to destroy him, he exacts his wrath and the wonder of it again so that people will see and know that he is gracious. What did Jesus' followers hear when he said, you are the salt of the earth? Was Jesus saying more than they were to add flavor to life in the course of the world that they were to preserve? I, I think maybe. I think maybe. And here's why. It's because Jesus is a Jew. Jesus is operating with his knowledge of his word that he had given. And repeatedly through the Old Testament, salt is used as a symbol pointing toward the covenant and the promises of God. His love toward his people. Leviticus chapter 2 and verse 13. You shall season all your grain offerings with salt. You shall not let the salt of the covenant with your God be missing from your grain offering. With all your offerings you shall offer salt. A symbol of the covenant that God established with the people that ultimately would bring Christ. That covenant the, the, the working of that covenant would bring Christ. In Numbers chapter 18 and verse 19, all the holy contributions that the people of Israel present to the Lord, I give to you and to your sons and daughters with you as a perpetual due. It is a covenant of salt forever before the Lord for you and for your offspring with you. Through the prophet Ezekiel, you shall present them before the Lord and the priest will sprinkle salt on them and offer them up as a burnt offering to the Lord. Why? Because it was signifying the covenant of God. Now why make this distinction? It presses home the point that it is only by the grace of God that we as believers are who we are. 
bear the qualities we bear, enjoy the blessings of God. We are these things because of God. Jesus is teaching his disciples and us that we are to relate in this world as a covenant people. That we are in essence agents and testimonies of God's grace in a rotten and decaying world. It isn't our political activism that is needed to save this world. It isn't our self-righteousness and our finger pointing and our judgment and our telling everybody that they're wrong and we're right that saves the world. What does save it? What does save it? Who does save it? Christ. Christ. His death. The forgiveness that comes in His death. It's our living our lives in relation to God and each other, demonstrating the bond that we have in this covenant with Christ. A covenant that was made by the shedding of His blood, His blood being poured out on us for the forgiveness of our sins. It's when we're helpful and then share the gospel. It says we live in this life reflecting the joy that we have in Christ. Not a bunch of prudes. Not a bunch of mean people. Not a bunch of sour pusses. But people who actually live as though they love their God because He loves them. And we celebrate it by the way that we live and engage and care for and live and serve each other and serve others. We're going to see next week, and Booney is preaching next week. We're going to see next week and in the weeks to come that as Christ addresses the law, it's for the purpose of us coming to understand that being salt looks like in our relationships with Him, each other, and our worship, and our praying, and our giving, and in our absolute dependence on Him. Everything is pointing toward how we do life in the midst of this rotten world. But then Jesus also states what? He says, you are the light of the world. A lot the same as being salt. But there's a different emphasis here. What does light do? Well, light exposes what's in the dark. But light also serves as a means to be able to see clearly. A lot of you are younger in here and you don't have problems with your eyesight. I have to have more and more light to be able to see clearly. Most of the time when I'm in the house and I'm trying to look at something that's really fine, you know where I go? I go outside. If it's daylight, I go outside and I get in the sun and then I start looking at what it is that I'm trying to see because light enables us to see clearly. How is it that as believers we are light? Well, when we are living in that way, people then can see clearly what it means to know God and to love Him and to follow Him, and they can see the difference. Will they always appreciate it? That is not what is being said. In some cases, they will 
appreciate it. We recognize that. We are to let our light shine, let our good works be seen. Why? So that they will glorify our Father in heaven. There is a part of that. But we just read before that what? People are going to look at you and see that you're different and they're going to want to kill you for it. So where do we stand in that? We live looking to Him constantly, not wavering. Not wavering. You know, light often is an analogy of the nature of God and the nature of Christians as well. In John 1, verses 5 through 7, God is light, 1 John. God is light and in Him there is no darkness at all. If we say that we have fellowship with Him and we walk in darkness, we lie and we do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as He Himself is, is, is the light and in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus His Son cleanses us from all sin. You know, Zechariah's own prophecy recorded in Luke chapter 1 where he points back to Isaiah 9, says what? That Jesus came into the world to shine upon those who sit in darkness, who sit in the shadow of death. Light exposes the death, but light reflects the life. Jesus said, I am the light of the world. And he who follows me shall not walk in darkness, but shall have the light of life. I want you to hear this today. And only believers are the light of the world, and that is only because that Christ is the light of the world. You say, okay, I've said all of that, and Jesus just simply said, what? You're the salt of the earth. And then he goes on to say that if you're not, then you're not. That was the whole point. It wasn't that somehow or another we can lose our saltiness, lose our flavor. Yeah, I know momentarily and for short periods of time we may not be as zesty, we may not be as kind, we may not look as good, and we may be contributing to a rotting world. But the point that he is making is that I am in you and you are the only salt and the world needs it. And you're the light of the world. Then he gives this picture. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden. Now you've heard me say this before. I, I I love it when I'm up in northern Ghana. When, when there is no light, just out there at night, no light, not getting lights from street lights that are flooding the area. In fact, now whenever we're wanting to actually look in the sky to see something in particular and see its wonder and its beauty, we can't because everywhere we walk, there are street lights and all of this light that is just not helping us be able to see the things that we want to see that God has illuminated. But in Jesus' day, if you were out walking on a dark night, 
the moon wasn't shining, or maybe it was cloudy. Darkness was really dark. I mean, I've been, I've been out in northern Ghana where I literally, I can hold my hand up right here. I can't see my hand. I can't, I see my hand in my bedroom because Janice has all these other little lights on around in the house. And even if the doors are closed, you're getting some infiltration of that light. Why stress that? I don't know that we have this view because of how we see light, but a city set on a hill cannot be hidden and a lamp is not intended to be covered up. And that was Jesus' point. And then what does he say? In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. So what is the outcome? The outcome is God's glory. That is the intent. Whatever brings him glory. If it's the stoning of Stephen, God has been gracious in letting them see a person who loves him and is devoted to him and one who is not holding against them the evil that is being committed in them. And God ultimately is glorified in that because his son is doing what? Looking like his son. I, I want to look like my heavenly father for his glory. We're living a gospel, a chapter each day by deed that we do, by word that we say. Men read what we live, whether faithless or true, say, what is the gospel according to your life? I'm grateful that I have you just dear friends and brothers and sisters in Christ to come alongside of, to serve with, live with, so that I can love you and you can love me, so that others will be able to know the love of God. That, that's not a soft-soap statement, but to see how He works in us knowing that we were no different than the world except for Him. Except for Him. I bless the Lord for Him and for His Spirit. Amen.